It's so great to be together and uh, see you this morning and uh, trust that you are doing well. I'm excited today to, first of all, welcome our Year of Your Life class of 2023 that have joined us in the service. I'm going to ask them to stand quickly. Not, not all the students are here yet. Um, there are some international students and still, still, still on their way. But to those that are here, it's so great that you've joined us. Won't you give them a really just a welcoming round of applause? And... Uh, Always remember that they appreciate anything they can eat. So if you want to bless them, you know, let's do that. But it's so great to have you with us, and we trust with you that this is going to be just a life-changing, life-shaping year in your life, as it was for Natasha and I that did it so long, long time ago. I did a long time ago, so he didn't. I did a long, long time ago. So it's great to have you with us. Won't you stretch out your hands to them, and we're going to pray for them. Father, we thank you for the year of your life, for the more than 30 years that you have Use this as an instrument in our community to get to, for young people to get to know you and to get to know themselves and their calling and their purpose. We pray for this year's class, those that will still join, and we speak your favor and your blessing over them. And we pray, Lord, that, that you would meet them in each of them in their own way, in a very special way. And we pray for just a blossoming to happen in their lives throughout this year. May you keep them, may you protect them, may you fill them with your presence, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. amen. We still have space on the Year of Your Life program, so if you're interested, uh, remember we now have a modular approach. You can sign up for a term at a time also. After the service, they, there will be a table at the, as you go outside of the main building, and uh, you're welcome to go chat to them. If um, you have a child that's just finished school or in that sort of early 20s, that it will really be worth their while. So please don't miss this opportunity. Then I'm also excited today to launch our series properly. Uh, you've heard us refer to this quite a lot, but as of today, we're starting with our new preaching series for the term, and it's entitled More Fruit. More Fruit. And throughout the series, what we're going to consider is how do we produce more fruit for the kingdom? We'll talk about what that fruit is, and how does the Lord work in our lives so that we can have and, and be more fruitful for the kingdom? I want to say to you that I, I believe as we do this series and as it unfolds, it's a word of maturing for us at this time. So when you come to, to church or view it online and join us uh, online or whether you watch it later or re-watch it as many of you do, Please make sure that you are in, in that space of saying, Lord, I'm wanting to grow and learn. So this is, sometimes we do, we do series and we do sermons that is, that is perhaps more aimed at encouraging us or sometimes more aimed at, at just helping us deal with some of the issues of life. And certainly that will all be part of this series, but the real focus of this series is a growing and a maturing. Because I believe we all want this to be the story of our lives. As you can see, the three bowls that we have on stage, and I trust you can see it on the camera also. We want to move from a space where we have some fruit in our lives. And when we have some fruit, it's great. But the Lord Jesus said he wants to work with us so that we can move from some fruit to some more fruit and grow in that, and then ultimately to get to the place where we can have more fruit, much more fruit, as some translations say, where our lives can overflow with the fruitfulness for his kingdom. Our corner scripture for this series is John 15, verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. What Jesus is saying is, if you follow me, this will happen in your life. If you live your life with me, pattern your life after me, be in me, then this process will take place in your life. You will move from some fruit to some more fruit to more fruit, much more fruit. And I don't know about you, but I want to see that take place in my life. But I want to remind you that why the idea of fruit is such a great illustration that Jesus is using here. Because how many of you know that to produce this, these grapes takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. In fact, this which we see here today, these wonderful, beautiful grapes, grapes and I'm going to be eating them as we're talking, uh, these wonderful grapes that we observe here, how many of you know 
This final manifestation of the fruit is just the last bit in a long process that took place in the unseen spaces. And I think that's a great description of discipleship. Discipleship is not a quick process. Now, when I get saved, that is a quick process because the scripture teaches us that salvation is instant. I believe in the work of the Lord Jesus, his completed work on the cross for me, and that is my salvation. So that happens instantly. But the working of following Jesus, becoming like Jesus, that takes the rest of my life. Amen? Sorry if you're a new Christian, this is not a sprint, this is a marathon. An up and down, up the hills, down the hills marathon. This is a learning, this is a slow, detailed, intensive process of formation that is taking place in our lives. And sometimes you get to see the fruit of the deep work that's going on on the inside. So as we're considering these things, we're going to take a, a walk through the book of John. And we're going to look at how do we allow this process, this slow, sometimes difficult process to unfold in our lives so that we can bear more fruit. Now, I also have here not only the grape, but the product of the grape. Now, this is grape juice, but it symbolizes wine. Anybody want to test me on this? This is really grape juice. I don't know if you know this, but to produce 700 milliliters of wine, it's a little bit less than the normal bottle of wine, I'm told. 750 milliliters is in the normal bottle of wine. So to produce that amount of wine, you require, on average, about a kilogram of grapes. So about a kilogram of grapes gives you one bottle of wine, a little bit more than a kilogram of grapes. But this is where it gets interesting. To produce one kilogram of grapes, the world standard at the moment is it requires about 610 liters of water. 610 liters of water make one kilogram of grapes that is enough to, through a, obviously the production of, of, of the process of winemaking, to make one bottle of wine, a little bit more than 600. It's about 700 something. So if this glass had 100 milliliters of wine in it, it would require about 80 kilograms of, of 80 liters, sorry, 80 liters of water to have produced this bit of wine. So the, the whole process of winemaking is a vine turning water into grapes. And then ultimately that grape gets turned into wine. What was Jesus' first miracle? We'll talk about it a bit more next week, but John 2. Now you all act like you don't know. You all act like I'm too holy for that. It's in the Bible. And listen, sorry to say this, but by all the research I've done, there's no evidence that that was grape juice. It was dinkum wine. Real, echte boerewijn, as we say. Jesus took water and he turned into wine. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. The job of a vine is to take water and to turn it into grapes. In the scripture for us, we talk about the new wine, the Holy Spirit. How can the new wine be poured into old wineskins? We sing that song. The, the, the crushing, the crushing of the grapes produces the new wine. So you can put all of that together and begin to realize that Jesus is in the business of making wine out of water. When he did that miracle, he was, I know he bypassed this whole part of it. He just went from water to wine. He just didn't even do the grapes right there. But he turned the water. And he, Jesus, didn't Jesus say, I am the living water? It makes me think that there's no way I can produce the fruit 
that will ultimately cause the Holy Spirit's movement in me and through me. There's no way I can produce enough fruit without the living water. And that's what Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. I'm connected through Jesus into the living water. And that living water in its vast quantities flows through my life and produces the grape. And that grape ultimately can cause the moving of the Holy Spirit because I am now the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's such rich imagery that John uses. And as we journey through the book of John, we're going to read and discover some of this imagery because one of the challenges we face in our modern era is a lot of the language and the symbols that John is using is a, is a little harder for us to understand because we don't understand his coded language. But his readers of the day understood it very well. So I'm going to first of all start here today by giving us a little bit of the historical context for the book of John. So that when we go through this series, we can keep referring back to it and have this understanding in mind. The first thing I want to say is who wrote the book of John? Now we believe that the book of John was written by John, the son of Zebedee, the brother of Mark. One, some of the first, uh, yes, the first disciples that Jesus called, sorry, brother of James. The brother of James that was some of the first disciples Jesus called. And Jesus nicknamed those two brothers the sons of thunder. Now, we don't quite exactly know why he did that. There's many theories as to that, but Jesus called them the sons of thunder. It's this John, John the disciple whom Jesus loved, as he's also described it. The same John that wrote the books of 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. This is whom we believe wrote the book of John. Now, why does that matter? Because the book of John, as the fourth gospel is an eyewitness testimony given to us to tell the story of who this Jesus is. And isn't it fantastic that one of the people that we know from scripture and the other disciples said was the closest to Jesus gave us his eyewitness testimony. Just imagine if, you, if somebody tells the story of your life but the record of your spouse is never included in that testimony. We will never get to know who you really were. Now Jesus didn't have a spouse, but he had friends that were close to him, and he had three friends that were a little closer than the rest, and John was one of them. In fact, he was known as the disciple Jesus loved. That meant he went sometimes with Jesus and did things with Jesus that the others didn't join in with. He saw things. He heard things that perhaps some of the others didn't and it positioned him ideally as a great eyewitness. So this John tells us about who Jesus was. So he wrote the book. When was it written? This also matters and I'll tell you just now why it matters when we know when it was written. According to most of our understanding today, the, the book of John was written either in the late 80s or early or mid to late 90s, in that decade period somewhere after Christ. So the book was finally written after Jesus and even after John's life probably. It was not written, but it was accumulated. That John was a teacher of the word. He was, in fact, in the New Testament times in the early church, one of the main teachers of the word. And many of the fathers of the church that followed immediately after the apostles sat under the instruction of John. And he was one that taught a lot of the, what we would call theology and doctrine of Jesus in the time. But finally, his writings and some of his teachings and that which he taught and traveled around was produced the book of John. So it was written in 80 or 90. Now why does this matter also? Because of the reason John wrote the book. Why did John write the book? He tells us himself. In John 20 verse 30 and 31 he tells us why he wrote the book. To summarize it, he's telling us the book to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who's Jesus? Because there was controversy around this Jesus. Now, as we're reading, remember, we're reading the stories of somebody looking back at who Jesus was. They've lived with Jesus. They've continued on after Jesus left the earth and continued in relationship with Jesus by the Holy Spirit's working. 
And they have come to certain conclusions about this Jesus. And now they are telling us who this Jesus was. And John has come to a conclusion. He said, I have decided who Jesus is. And I'm now going to tell you who this Jesus is. Based on what I saw and experienced, and based on what the Holy Spirit has revealed, I'm going to tell you who this Jesus is. Not only am I going to tell you who this Jesus is, I'm going to give you the evidence, the reasoning for why I believe he is who I say he is. So he does this wonderful thing where John 1, which we're going to take a look at just now, is almost like his thesis statement. He says, this is the conclusion I've come to about who Jesus is. And John 1, verse 1 to 18, he records for us who Jesus is. The conclusion he's come to after having walked with Jesus, lived with Jesus, ate with Jesus, drank with Jesus, saw the miracles of Jesus, saw the death of Jesus, saw the resurrection of Jesus, cared for the mother of Jesus, then continued to see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts as it's recorded for us, continued to be a leader in the church. Now when he's, all of that, he says, all of this has made me to conclude that Jesus is the Messiah. The one the Jews have been waiting for has come. He is the Messiah. This is my conclusion. And then he proceeds after John 1 verse 18. From verse 19 on, he starts telling us why he believes this. And he talks about signs. He says, I'm going to show you the signs that will tell you that Jesus is the Messiah. How many of you know what a sign is? A sign points to something else. So if I'm driving along the road and my fuel gauge is starting to show E, you know, not for enough, for empty, some of us discovered that accidentally. And as I'm driving on the road and I say, my little orange light comes on, I need, a, I need a, a fuel pump. I look for, in South Africa, it's those little brown signs that has like a little petrol pump on it. They, in, in like a couple of decades from now, those will probably be replaced by power plugs with a load shedding schedule underneath. <laughs> but now we look for that little how many of you know you don't see that brown sign with the petrol pump and you stop there and you go, where's the fuel? That points you towards something. John is a pointer. That's why he's called John the evangelist also. He's pointing and he's saying, because of these things that happened, these signs that I saw and I have interpreted for you what they mean, I want you to see that Jesus is the Messiah. And I want you to treat him as the Messiah. He's writing to a specific audience also. He's writing to the Jews of the time, both Jews in Palestine, in Jerusalem, and the Jews of what we call the diaspora, the Jews that were spread out throughout the world at that time. He's writing to all of them, and he's, he's putting the case before this them that Jesus is the Messiah. They were mostly Greek-speaking Jews, and so he's writing to them and he's saying, I want you to see that the Messiah has come. Stop waiting for the Messiah, he has come. And the backdrop for his writing, why he's particularly writing in the way he is at that time, is because a major event took place in 70 after Christ that affected every Jew and every Christian. And that was the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. In 66 after Christ, there was a guy that was the proconsul of, a procurator of, of, Israel, of Jerusalem. And he loved money, as most Roman procurators did. This guy was Cesius Florus, and Cesius Florus wanted more money from the Jews. And so he raised the taxes, and eventually what he did is he went into the temple, and he took some of the treasures of the temple for tax. And this, you can think, was a great insult to the Jews of the day and caused them to begin to rise up against the Romans. And so they started rioting and they started fighting with the Romans. And the Romans responded and killed 3,600 Jews in that year in Jerusalem. This galvanized all the Jews, not only in Jerusalem but the surrounding areas and all the Jews heard of this. And it led to what was called in history the first Jewish revolt as the Jews stood up and started taking arms and they were going to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem and out of Judea. This battle between them and the Romans really began at the place called Masada and that's also where it ended. 
How many of you remember Masada, know what Masada is? Some of you have been there. I haven't had the pleasure. Natasha's been there. But Masada is the place where a Roman garrison took up just outside of Jerusalem because it was on a steep incline. Steep incline. It was supposed to be an impenetrable fortress that they had. And so this is where the Roman garrison was stationed that, that was you know, ruling over Jerusalem and the soldiers that were causing the Israelites so much pain. So there's this group of zealots that got this idea in their head that they are going to go and attack the Romans in their fortress and they're going to overcome them. And so they went for it. They attacked Masada and by some miracle, they were successful. And they killed the Roman soldiers in Masada and they took over that fortress. And this required a response from the Romans, obviously. And so the, the, um, the guy who was the, the, the overseer of the, the area, Cestius Callus, um, the Roman governor, uh, had an army come in from Syria with 20,000 soldiers and they came to crush this revolt of the Jews. This led to a prolonged battle in which ultimately that lasted for a long time, which ultimately 6,000 Roman soldiers were killed. So they thought they were gonna come and quickly kill these, these Jewish people and just take care of them and then that'll be fine. But the Jews put up quite a fight and the Romans weren't able to conquer them. And so eventually they stepped up their game, the Romans. And Caesar, at the time, Emperor Nero, who was the Caesar, sent one of his top generals, a guy by the name of Vespasian, to go and conquer Rome, so uh, Jerusalem. So what they did is they encircled Jerusalem, they took siege of Jerusalem, and they started squeezing the city. It is, the stories are told of even the high priest's wife that used to live in quite riches was looking for bread in the street because there was no food anymore. They completely sanctioned the city, surrounded it. We're going to kill the people in Jerusalem. But the battle continued. And as they continued fighting for the city, the, 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 obviously Jerusalem was growing tired, but the Roman soldiers were getting more and more frustrated because they couldn't break through. Just as they were about to conquer the city, Nero died. This plunged the Roman Empire into some leadership crisis and at the, at, you know, so things quieted down for a little bit. Then ultimately Vespasian, this general that was attacking Jerusalem, was made the new emperor. So he left and went to Rome to become the emperor. The last thing he did before he left is he appointed his son, Titus, to now take over the army to conquer the Jews. And Titus proceeded and he conquered Jerusalem. Now story is told in history that he did not want to destroy the temple. But his soldiers that were so frustrated with these Jews ransacked the city and went in and destroyed the temple in 70 after Christ. So you can see the battle, the fighting, the conflict lasted about four years, culminated in 70 after Christ, the, the temple being completely destroyed. And that temple is still destroyed till today. If you go to Jerusalem, you'll find the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, and that's part of the original temple that's left, the, the only part plus you know, some ruins and things. The Jews of today is hoping for the third temple. The first temple was the temple of Solomon, then you had this temple, and they're waiting for the third temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. But John knew that something great has happened. He picked up on what Jesus said when Jesus said, I will destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. And John realized that having the temple being destroyed left a vacuum in the spiritual life of the Jews. And it was an ideal time to evangelize them with the message that the Messiah had come. You no longer need to wait for a temple because the Messiah had come himself. The temple was to be the place where you could go to learn about the Messiah to wait for the Messiah, to do your religious practices, to prepare for the Messiah. He says, why do you need a temple? The Messiah has come. You don't need a temple. And we're privileged in our community, just right here in front of me, is some of our Messianic Jews. And the difference between them and other Jews is to say, the Messiah has come. The Messiah has come. 
he has come. And so he's writing to say to the Jews and the Christians of the time, because at that time, towards the end of the first century, the, the, the Christians were still pretty much seen as Jews by everybody around them. Christianity was a sect within Judaism. What happened to a Jew happened to a Christian. It's only later that they started separating. So he's writing to the Jewish and Christian community to say to them, you have felt the trauma of the temple being destroyed. You don't know what to do with your faith anymore. You don't have a place to go to now to do your sacrifices, to have your ritual washings, to do your ceremonies. You don't have a place to go to meet with the priests, to hear the law being passed. But you have something far better than that. You have Jesus, the living temple. And because of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus said, it's better for you that I leave so that the Holy Spirit can come. And now we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. We no longer have one temple in Jerusalem that everybody has to try and get to, to do their religion. We are all now the temple of the Holy Spirit. We have a far better hope than anybody in Israel ever had. Stop looking for the loss of the temple. Because the loss of the temple for the Jew was a loss of identity. It was a loss of their nationhood. And he's speaking into that gap and saying, you have something far better. Please consider Jesus. So he's writing his whole book, the, the Gospel of John, is a defense for Jesus. And he's saying, Jesus is the Messiah. Consider Jesus. He's asking the people to give a, Jesus a good look. And if they give him a good look and they understand what Jesus was doing and they understand the symbols and the coded language that what Jesus was doing throughout their symbols and their institutions, they will get to see that he is the Messiah. Now what we're going to do is we're going to follow a little bit of that path with them. Some of it we're going to need to understand a little bit better some of the things that John is writing and why he's saying it because we don't have the privilege of understanding what they did because we don't understand some of the coded language. And we'll do that as we walk through the book of John. We're not going to walk through every scripture, but some of the main themes through the book of John we want to walk for this reason. Because if Jesus is the vine... If I don't know who Jesus is, if I don't relate to Jesus in the right way, I can never produce the fruit that he wants from my life. And this is not religious fruit. This is real life fruit. From next week on, we'll start talking about what this fruit is. So this is a little advert. Come back. Stay with us if you're online. Come back. And we'll talk about more what the fruit is. But if we get Jesus wrong, we'll get the wrong fruit. If we misidentify Jesus or if we misunderstand Jesus, it leads to huge problems down the line. We, you and I, are privileged today, so privileged to sit here and we have the scriptures put together neatly for us to define and describe things for us. Don't you think we owe it to our brothers and sisters of the faith that has gone before us that did the hard work that preserved the scripture to give the scripture a bit of time? To sit with it and say, speak to us, show us. And I want to remind you, the journey of a disciple is a slow journey. It's a careful journey. So I'm going to, I'm going to quickly jump into John 1 for us today. And just highlight for us this great portion of a description of Jesus. In John 1, you find every title that is used for Jesus in the rest of the New Testament is used by John in this one chapter as he just assimilates and brings everything together that we believe about Jesus. And this is the foundation of our faith. So let's quickly look at John 1. John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What does that tell you about Jesus? Remember, put yourself in the position of John is sitting with you and he's trying to tell you that Jesus is the Messiah. He's wanting to convince you about who this Jesus is. Now he's starting to tell you things about Jesus that he has come to believe because of his eyewitness testimony, both living with Jesus and everything that followed after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, oh, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now it's interesting, why does he use the word Word? He's taking a concept that was beginning to be very popular in their time. It's the word logos. You know that. Greek word. The Greek word for logos started in about 400 years before that to become a concept that started developing both in Greek and Jewish thought. And it was this. That you had God, but God had an expression of himself that was his thought his reasoning, and he created everything out of himself from that thought and reasoning. They started identifying that there's God and then there's this creative power that was causing everything to live and everything to have its place. And that thing they called the logos, the thought of God in a sense, as in the thinking, the reasoning of God. That's why today when we, when we talk about theology, we, we have the word logos in there. Psychology, zoology, sociology, anthropology. We use the word logos and for us it means it's the thought about that particular field of study. So if I'm a zoologist, I have studied the thought about animals. He's saying, John is reaching for that word and he's saying, this which you have started identifying as God's reason and creative power, let me tell you who that is. That's not just an attribute of God, that is God himself and that is Jesus. And he begins to explain to them. That's why he says, in the beginning was the word, logos, and this word was with God and this word was God. So he's saying to us, Jesus is the word. Jesus was there from the beginning. Because if you're not there from the beginning, you can't be God. Amen? Because if you're not there from the beginning, then God made you at some point and then you're not God. And some people believe that about Jesus. They believe Jesus came about somewhere later down the story. He's saying, no, Jesus was there from the beginning. He is God. He was there from the beginning and he then, which we termed, he is pre-existent. Before everything else existed, Jesus existed. He was not created, he was not made, he's always been there. And because he was always there, Jesus is God. Now this is important. This is like the cheat sheet for Christianity right here. If you wanna call yourself a Christian, this is what you believe. You have to believe this. If you do not believe that Jesus is God, I'll leave that open for you to understand what I'm saying. John is saying, this is what we believe. Jesus is God. He was there from the beginning. John 1 verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. Not only was he with God, but Jesus is a person. He, the key word there is he. He was with God in the beginning. He is a person. Not a being, not a force, but a person. Not some energy that flows through everything. He is a person. Jesus. Therefore you can know this Jesus because he's a person. John 1 verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus created everything. This Logos created everything. He was there in the beginning. He was God and he created. You exist because of him. He is your reason for existence. Now again, if he didn't create everything, he couldn't be the Messiah. Because only the Messiah can redeem us, but the Messiah had to be God for God to redeem that which he created. Otherwise, he would be some substitute. Jesus wasn't just that. He was God that created us. Therefore, he had the right to come and die in our place. And his death would affect our situation. If anybody else dies in my place, it's great, but it cannot save me. But if God does, the creator does, it can save me. He's building his case. John 1 verse four, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. He's saying not only did Jesus create everything, but he's the reason for everything. Everything has life because of Jesus. Now that's very important again. Because if this guy that walked around on the earth supposedly was born by a virgin, did many miracles, healed people, raised the dead, then was beaten up, put on a cross, died on a cross, 
then was supposedly raised on the third day and then ascended to heaven. If all of that is just a nice story and a myth, but it really wasn't God, it doesn't really mean a lot. But the fact that it was really God, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, the one without whom we can, the one without whom we can exist, if this guy that walked on the earth is really that guy, you have to stop and give him attention. Because if you reject him, you're rejecting your own life. You are removing from yourself the possibility to live and to bear fruit if you reject him. His life. This is serious, John is saying. Then John 1 verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it. Now he starts introducing another element. He says, there's Jesus, but there's that which opposes Jesus. And he calls Jesus the light and he calls this the darkness. And we understand that because of sin, the world is in darkness. Darkness, one of the ways that darkness is understood throughout scripture is it is the lack of understanding, lack of sight, lack of revelation, lack of knowledge is darkness. When we still say today, if I'm in the dark is I don't know. So the world is in darkness. Because sin is the manifestation of darkness, but we are ultimately in darkness because we turned away from God who is the light. Here's the light, here's us in the darkness. We have separated ourselves. So one of the things you'll see in the book of John and in the writings of John is he likes to put things apart. He polarizes things. He had a bit of a binary view of the world. There's light and there's darkness. There's hot and there's cold. I will spit you out of my mouth if you are here in the middle. He says, you're either of the light or you're of the darkness. There's no gray here in John's writing. And you'll see this. So he says, Jesus has come into the world as the light to conquer the darkness. Now what that means is, in, in the original language, is Jesus is both the light that I can see him, but he's also the light by which I see everything else. He's not only the light, he's also the illuminator of everything. If we switch off every light in this room, we can no longer see each other, everything becomes dark. We live in a world where without Jesus, everything is dark. I can't understand you, I can't understand animals, I can't understand creation, I can't understand sociology, I can't understand nothing. Because there's no light, we're just groping around trying to figure out what's going on. He says, this Jesus is the light. And he has come into the world, into the darkness to change the darkness, to bring light. In John 1 verse six, he then takes a little bit of a detour. We're gonna in the future talk about John the Baptist, but let me just read this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. And one of the things that John does for us in his book that we'll discover is he talks about how there are certain people that will, give, that will be drawn to the light and there are certain people that will be repelled by the light. He says there are people that love the darkness actually. They don't want the light. They are like the cockroaches that when you switch the light on, they run away and they hide. I didn't say those were cockroaches. He says they were like in that small little bit of behavior. Jesus never called them cockroaches. He gave them far worse names than that. But there were people that don't like, and still today, there are people that will never love the light because they love the darkness. But John was our first example of somebody that loved the light because he's gonna teach us what a disciple is, and he begins with John, and he says, this guy, notice him, that even before Jesus did a miracle, even before Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, he already recognized Jesus because he was of the light he had the light he had the longing for the light so he spotted the Messiah before anybody else spotted him he saw who he was he says we want to be people like John we want to see we want to know that we are not Jesus John knew that he wasn't Jesus but he could recognize Jesus we want to recognize Jesus 
John 1 verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus became incarnate. That's another part of our theology and our doctrine, our Christology, is that Jesus came and dwelt among us. He took on the form of a human being. He was 100% God, 100% man at the same time, a miracle. And let me tell you, this is unique amongst any religious claim by any God or any person that claims to have any religious practice that there's only us that has a God that came and became like us and lived with us and among us. Jesus wasn't a ram to a ram courier, hand-to-hand courier, that came to the Father and said, what message do you want to send your people? Give me the message, I will go and deliver it. And Jesus came and delivered it and said, it's your business now, you've got the message, do what you want. No, Jesus was the message. Jesus said, if you see me, you see the Father. Because this, we'll get to it just now, Jesus is God co-equal with the Father. And Jesus came and lived God among us so that we wouldn't miss it. And that we could see him, experience him, taste him, touch him, feel him. And so that he could really die for us. This is Jesus incarnate. And again, dear brothers and sisters, those that are online with us, this is what we believe as Christians. We don't believe that Jesus was just a prophet. We don't believe that Jesus was a teacher merely. He was those things also, but a prophet delivers a message. Jesus is God with us. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. I'm so glad I don't have to go to a temple to try and find God. He is God with us. From the beginning, the covenant, remember we spoke about it, God was saying, I'm your God and you will be my people and I will dwell among you. That is Jesus by the Holy Spirit today. John 1, verse 10 to 13. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Such a sad statement. This Jesus that made us, that keeps us alive, we don't recognize him. We don't recognize our own father. We are so deceived and lost, but that's why he had to come into the world to give us a hope of recognizing him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him, the Israelites. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born out of, not born out of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. You see, because for the Jewish people of the time, you had to go to a Jewish system led by people, and they will declare you that you are the son of God or not the son of God. They would declare that you are a child of God or not a child of God. They will say you are in right standing with God or not right standing with God. John says, I have a higher authority. I am a child of God, not by the declaration of the law, but by the declaration of God himself. And he made me his child. He has declared me his child. John 1 verse 14 to 18, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him, crying, he cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes out after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through, came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, as is in the closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. And this portion of Scripture plus the rest of 1 John 1 tells us that there's a trinity. You will hear some people say the Bible doesn't say that God is a trinity because it doesn't use the word trinity. These are fantastic descriptions of the Trinity. We don't have three gods, we have one God. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And John brings that revelation to us. We'll talk more about that. Uh, Mike, will you come and just play with me? Thank you. But here we have the doctrine of the Trinity. Let me go back to where I started as I finish. Jesus is the author and beginner of life. He is God. God came to live with us in the darkness to to give us the option to choose the light. The way we can choose the light is we respond 
to his initiative. He's stretching out a hand. If he doesn't stretch out a hand, I can't choose him. But if he stretches out a hand, I can choose him. And John is saying, look at Jesus, investigate, inspect him, examine him. And if you've looked, you will see that he's the Messiah and you will want to take his hand. Inspect him, look at him. But can I tell you that the little double play that he puts in the words, in, in, in original language and thought, when he says, examine Jesus, look at him, look at the sign. Is he saying, as you're examining him, he's actually examining you. Are you a person of the light or are you a person of the darkness? If you reject Jesus, you will be a person of the darkness. If you accept him, you will be a person of the light because he is the light. You cannot find light outside of him. You cannot find light anywhere else. So if this Jesus is the vine, it's the only way that I can bear fruit is by being grafted, abiding in Jesus. That's why Jesus said, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The word abide, we need to understand, is Jesus saying, stay in me, who John declares I am. Stay in me. The word abide is more than being intimate with Jesus. It's more than sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's more than having your head on Jesus' feet. It's more than having your quiet time. It's more than just spending time with Jesus abiding is that but it's about saying my life is in Jesus everything is in Jesus because he is God you see otherwise we treat Jesus like the one that's come to help me live the life I want to live he will give me a far better life than that but I have to come into him so as I said earlier to follow Jesus is a long lifelong slow process that's why we need to abide stay rooted in him so that when the ups and downs of life comes I'm rooted in Christ that when I'm going through the difficulty the trauma the pain the joys the celebration everything I'm rooted in Christ because slowly he is forming me shaping me and it is that slow formation that ultimately so much of it that happens in the unseen will produce the fruit of the seen. And that fruit that is seen will give glory to God and will tell everybody, you have been with Jesus because you have kept in Him. I don't know about you, but I want to stay. I want to abide. Won't you stand with me? Won't you stand with me? I know I've given a lot of information and I needed to settle this today so that as we move on, I can just touch back certain things. But can we in this moment just open our hearts, our minds, our whole being? And I, I just have a need to say thank you, Jesus, that you came into this darkness. You took this darkness and you faced it head on for me. Thank you, Jesus. Don't you just want to say thank you, Jesus? Thank you that you are my God. Thank you, Jesus. And then we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be grafted into the vine. Jesus be the center be our life be our hope everything's about you Jesus and we pray Lord that you will continue with us by your Holy Spirit to bring, bring us closer to Jesus to help us abide in Jesus to remain in Jesus and as we Walk through the book of John. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you will form us more and more so that the fruit can come through our lives of having been with Jesus and continuing to be with Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Make the new wine through us. Thank you that we are rooted 
in the water of life that gives enough water, abundance of water so that the fruit can be produced and that the wine can be made to be given to this world. The Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, work in us. Come Holy Spirit. As I end the service, I'm going to give opportunity if anybody's here today or watching online with us and you have not chosen Jesus. You've been perhaps examining, you've been looking, but you need to make a choice because Jesus is stretching out a hand to you. You've got to do something with that hand. You can't ignore it. You've got to do something with that hand. Either you're going to take it or you're going to turn away from it. If today is the day where you're saying, I want to take that hand, I'm going to ask you as we finish the service, come to the front. Our team will be here. They'll pray with you and help you in that. But it may be also that you're here today and you're facing a particular area in your life and you're saying, Lord, help me to take your hand in this situation. Help me to see you in this. Help me to abide in you in this reality, in this challenge. I want to abide. What does it mean to abide in you, Lord? In my marital problem, in my disease, my child struggling at school, my work situation, my lack of employment, the, the pressure that I'm feeling in this nation at this time, financially and socially. What does it mean to abide in you, Jesus? Show me. And if you need prayer with somebody, they will be so glad to do that. If you're online, you're welcome. They'll, there's an email address how you can connect with us. Please make use of that. May the Lord bless you. I pray that the life-giving love of Jesus will in this time become more transformative to us. And may Jesus be with you. Not just here, but where you go. May His face shine upon you. May you experience His peace because He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I am the pre-existent God that made you I am your life. I am your light. I am your hope. You belong because of me. Come. May you experience him in this week and as we go forward in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us here on site this morning. Thank you for those that are with us online. We love you. We so appreciate you. And we're so thankful for the journey of God in your life. May you go with him. Please remember those that are wanting to meet with Letitia in the Connect Lounge, you can do so. Those that want Year of Your Life information, their tables just outside, go and do so. May the Lord bless you.